This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. The Authenticity Project didn't land in your bag by chance. I've spent the last four weeks looking for the right person to take it on. You're carrying Julian's book back to the part of the world I took it away from. I wonder whether you might be the sort of person to be a friend to Julian, or a lover for Monica, or both. Will you go and find the cafe? Will you change someone's life? Will you write your story? I hope one day I'll find out what happens next because I'll miss this notebook at a time when I was floating aimlessly in space. It kept me tethered to the space station. This is GP Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Claire Pooley, author of The Sober Diaries, a memoir, and best-selling novel, The Authenticity Project. In this fast romp around London with a quick detour to Thailand, Characters are confronted with a notebook that asks, what would happen if you shared the truth? An aging artist writes the opening entry. A kind cafe owner finds the notebook next, then a drug-addicted, jet-setting finance guy who decides to strategically give it to someone who might be a good match for the cafe owner. Lots of coincidental meetings, interesting, quirky characters, and everyone learns a little something that could change the course of their lives. Hi, Claire. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. It's so good to be here. So I know you started by writing a memoir. Can you talk about that and then tell the story of how you came to write The Authenticity Project? Gosh, well, that story starts about six and a half years ago when I realized that my love of wine had got rather out of control and I was terribly addicted to alcohol. And I decided to quit, but I was too ashamed to talk to anybody about it in real life. So my form of therapy was writing, and I started writing a blog, which I called Mummy Was a Secret Drinker. And I poured my heart out in that blog every single day about what I was going through and all the research that I'd done and everything. And that blog went viral. I was writing anonymously, so I didn't 
publicize it at all. But within a year, it had had about three million hits. And it was then turned into a memoir called The Sober Diaries. And that experience made me realize that when we're really open and honest about what's going on in our lives, it can change not just our lives, but the lives of the people that read those stories. And that really was the inspiration for my novel, The Authenticity Project, which is about the magical things that happen when you're really authentic about your life. Mm. I usually veer toward literary books, as I told you, but The Authenticity Project, in addition to being set in England, is set in one of my favorite places, a cafe. So I wanted to read it. Can you say more about Monica's Cafe? <laughs> sure. Uh, Monica's Cafe is, is my ideal cafe. So, you know, two of my favorite things are books and coffee. And, and her cafe embodies both of those. So, so Monica, one of the main characters, uh, sets, uh, sets up this cafe after her mother dies and she has been working as a lawyer in the city and she is really burned out and decides that uh, she wants to create her dream place and it's a cafe that serves not only great coffee but it has a little library in the back so it's got lots of lovely um, eclectic and mismatching armchairs and and furniture and Uh, In the back of the cafe, there's this library where you can come and take any of the books as long as you replace them with one of your own. So it's it's a sort of book exchange and she allows her customers to sit there for hours reading as long as they drink a coffee every now and again. So uh, so that's what Monica's Cafe is like. Sadly, it doesn't exist, but it does in my head. Mm, And maybe one day. I do hope so. (laughs) The question that starts the Authenticity Project is, How well do you know the people who live near you? How well do they know you? But the most intriguing part that I thought was, quote, everyone lies about their lives. What would happen if you shared the truth instead? Ah, I read that and thought such a sad comment on humanity. I (laughs) want to know, I want to know, Claire, what kind of feedback from readers are you getting about that? Oh, I, you know what? I haven't had one single person say to me that 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 sentiment was not true. So nobody has said people don't lie about their lives. You know, what are you talking about? And I, I guess what people associate with, I'm not talking necessarily about the big lies, the sort of, you know, the real overt untruths. I'm talking about the fact that uh, the persona that we portray on social media particularly is the best part of ourselves you know it's in our nature to curate our lives and to make people feel that you know our lives are better than they necessarily are and certainly that's that's what I did and nobody knew that my life was falling about falling apart at the seams um and Maybe it's a particularly British thing as well. You know, this thing about the stiff upper lip and, you know, when people ask you how you are and you go, I'm fine. Whereas actually what you mean is, oh, my life is so awful. And and that's that's what I meant. Um, it's, as I said, it's not the big lies. It's the everyday covering up of, of issues. And the problem with that is when you portray your life as perfect, everyone else who looks at it feels inadequate. So... You know, we're making people feel worse about themselves accidentally. 
Mm. Except when you get older and then you just spend all the time complaining about everything. <laughs> totally honestly. I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I'm making that up. Maybe I only I do that. Anyway, in which character do you think you attributed most of your own personality to which character? You know, that's a really interesting question because when I finished writing the book, I gave the manuscript to my eldest daughter, who at the time was about 15. And uh, she read it and she said, Mummy, you do realize that all of these characters are a little bit like you, don't you? And <laughs> you know what? I hadn't realized that at all until that moment. Um, I knew that one or two were, but I hadn't realized that in a way I'd planted, you know, a, a different parts of myself in different places. Um, and, and I think that's because when I started blogging, I wrote as therapy. And I think when I switched to, to fiction, I carried on writing as therapy. So you know, a lot of a lot of my writing is about exploring things that matter to me, things that I find hard, you know, things that I struggle with. And and that's what I've done with each of these characters. But to answer your question, that I guess the the character that is most like me is Hazard. And Hazard is a is an alcohol and cocaine addict. And we see his journey through the book um, from you know of giving giving up those addictions, uh, which he does at the beginning, and and we see you know what he goes through, and and that his struggle was very much my struggle. Uh, so so he is probably the the character that is most overtly like me. Wow, I'm so surprised about that. Uh, he uh, he's interesting character, but he's he's kind of a jackass to begin with. He doesn't like being hated, but he can tell that. That's how everybody looks at him. And he hates himself, too. So he's interesting, but, but he's horrible. I, yeah. I'm so Oh, okay. Say more about that. He, he is horrible at the beginning, but, uh, but he redeems himself. And, you know, there's a quote at the beginning of the book. It's a Leonard Cohen um, uh, lyric. And it goes, you'll probably know it, it goes, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And the reason I put that quote at the beginning is, is it really summarized the whole theme of the book for me, which is about how it's the things often that we dislike about ourselves and the things that we find the hardest and things that we struggle with that are also the things that make us really human and unique and often the things that make us lovable. And I sort of felt that way about all of the characters and perhaps Hazard most of all, that the things at the beginning that, you know, they they struggled with the most were the things that actually became their redeeming features. And, and Hazard, you know, Hazard struggles at the beginning with... with I mean, as you say, he hates himself. He finds, uh, you know, he he feels like his life is 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 really empty. And, you know, it's by the end he he goes on such a journey. And I I feel sort of I feel so proud of him by the end of the book. And and what a different person he becomes. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's true. Okay, so Julian is an aging artist who enjoyed a flurry of notoriety in the 60s and 70s. And in his journal entry, he said something that uh, that I identified with. 
age has made me invisible. Can you say more? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm in my 50s now. And, uh, you know, I think many women in their, their 50s and upwards feel this too, you know, that you, uh, there used to be a day when I could step out into the street and the, the traffic would stop. <laughs> now I think I just get run over. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, you do feel that, that society venerates youth and, and uh, you know, as you get older, it is, it's very easy to feel irrelevant and invisible. And, and Julian is, is particularly so because his wife has died 15 years previously and he's really become a bit of a hermit and he's holed himself up and and stopped engaging with society um so yeah so he starts the authenticity project really as a way of of trying to be seen trying to get people to notice who he is even if it's just through reading his story in a book mm-hmm. uh a name that comes up several times that I had to Google is Emmeline Pankhurst. Monica's mother says, we are all Emmeline Pankhurst. So can you explain that for the American audience? Mm, she, she was one of the most famous suffragettes. So, so she fought for many years uh, for the right of women to have the vote. And uh, she was arrested numerous times. She went on hunger strike and was force fed. And, you know, she she was one of the most instrumental people in finally getting the vote for women. And, um, in England? In England, yes, yeah. Um, and uh, and yes, and that's that's why Monica's mother, who is a feminist, and and Monica, who who is also a feminist, um, are uh, you know often refer to to Emmeline. And her her grave is in my local cemetery, and oh. is where I I go walking with the dogs. And so and the the graveyard is a very important place in the book because. Um, it's one of the, the places where the characters meet because Julian talks in his diary entry about how the, um, the Admiral's gravestone is where he and his friends used to meet in the 1960s and 70s in the days before we, we had mobile phones. And so they would meet in this graveyard, which actually connects several districts of London. It connects Kensington, Chelsea and Fulham and Earls Court. Um, and they would meet there to plan their weekends. And he still, he talks about how he still goes to the Admiral's grave every Friday to toast to his, his dead friends and or and friends that he's lost contact with and, and his, his, uh, his dead wife, Mary. Um, and so as each of the characters who find Julian's book read this story, they often end up going to the cemetery at, at fri- on Friday at a particular time to try and meet Julian. And as a result, they all start meeting each other. So, so it's a very important place in the book. Um, and that's where Emmeline Pankhurst's grave is. And whenever Monica, the character, sees the grave, she always says, takes time to say thank you to Emmeline. Mm. I might have to stop by that cemetery next time I'm in London, okay. It's beautiful. It's like a little oasis in the middle of the city because it's it's incredibly peaceful and and there are some inc- amazing people buried there. Every every grave has its own little story, which is mm. is fascinating. And you're allowed to walk through with your dogs. 
Yes, yes, long ah. as they're on leads. <laughs> <laughs> the story might have taken place in any big city in the world, right? But it's London. So there are some language differences that often stopped me in my reading. So I, I just, a couple of words that I'd love to go over. Chivy, chivy. Oh, uh, uh, like chivy along. Yes. <laughs> so is that What's not that a word from? that you, you use in, in America? Um, I'm going to be using it from now from. on. Um, I have no idea where, I don't know what the etymedia, how, how do you say that word? Etymology. The derivation <laughs> of that word is. I'm going to have to look it up. But uh, but yes, you talk about chivying somebody along, sort of, you know, just encouraging them to move faster. Okay. And then uh, let's discuss Jaffa cakes. They come up. Ah, those are a type of biscuit. And and they're a really interesting type of biscuit, actually, because they, there was a big debate for a long time in England about whether they should be categorized as a cake or a biscuit. And actually, people eat them like biscuits, but they're quite soft. So they have a cakey texture to them. And the reason it was important is because cakes, I can't remember which way around it is, but I think Biscuits aren't taxed, but cakes are, or vice wait, wait. versa. What? Wait, when you say <laughs> when you say biscuits, you mean cookies? Cookies. Yeah, sorry, cookies. So are they so a cookie cookies? or are they a cake? Wait, and, so and what? It was, what? <laughs> and it became a really big issue because one is taxed and one isn't. So there was a, a, this this debate raged for years about whether these things were cookies or cakes. <laughs> so wait, so, so somebody gets to decide. If something's a cake or a cookie, and if it's a cake, well, was the cake lobby so strong that they made sure cakes weren't taxed? I can't, I can't remember which way round it is, which one was taxed and which one wasn't. But uh, one counts. I think, I, I think cookies were untaxed because they counted as a basic food stuff and cakes weren't because they were more luxury or vice versa but obviously cookies are a basic food stuff but <laughs> I think but cake is so too, too. You know, I know without oh cake. my goodness this might need to be an international debate truthfully wow I learned so much and now it makes <laughs> me want to have a piece of cake also Jaffa cake sounds so delicious all right there are a host of other characters that are part of Monica's world uh, an Instagram influencer a gay couple whose grandmas accept because she worries it won't. It will mean she won't have grandchildren. An Australian gardener. Which of these side stories was the most fun for you to create? Ah, um, it's uh, that's a really tricky one. It's almost sort of. You know, it's like when people ask who your favorite character is, and you feel like it's choosing a favorite child. Um, I can tell you I can tell you which story I found the hardest to create, mm. which was Riley's. So Riley the Australian gardener. And the reason I found him really hard and I struggled with him and rewrote his story several times is because he's the only one without the fatal flaw. He's almost perfect. He looks gorgeous, he is really happy all the time, he's uncomplicated, and he's almost the touchstone that shows throws everybody else into relief and um and I, then that's why I found him so tricky because I realized that when I write characters I always start from their issues and I mm. and I learn everything about them from understanding what 
darkness lies at the core in a way and I couldn't do that with Riley so so his was a story I found the most difficult to write mm-hmm. uh, but some of the other characters were really uh, really came alive also and the cooking the grandma <laughs> oh yes uh grandma mrs Wu. uh i i did i did have a great deal of fun with her um and and alice's story the alice is uh is an instagrammer and she is a new mum and she uh she's the one that sort of portrays this perfect life on instagram whereas the reality is she's really struggling with this small baby and and you know, I really associate with that. That was that was my experience of new motherhood. I expected it to be so easy, and actually, I found it harder than I ever could have imagined. You know, those first few months. Um, and there's there's a scene in Alice's story where she has terrible mastitis, and she asks her husband to go out and buy her a cabbage because she's heard that cabbage leaves. Um, uh, help mastitis and he comes back with a bunch of uh, Brussels sprouts which which we eat at Christmas and um, and she is so furious with him that she throws the Brussels sprouts at his head and that happened to me although in my case it was a cauliflower um, so I threw that <laughs> cauliflower at my husband when he he brought it home for mastitis and he said he said what's what's the matter what, what's wrong with the cauliflower and and I said you know it's supposed to be a cabbage and I, <laughs> I said what am I supposed to do with this and he said I thought you wanted to eat it <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm so glad to hear that was based on a real story. That's fun. <laughs> um, do you think people in real life would use their real names if they found a, well, a notebook like the one Julian created, asking people to be honest with about their lives under the already presupposing that people lie about themselves? So in real life, what do you think? Oh, I, you know, I deliberately didn't have them use their surnames most of them um because for exactly that reason so you know i figured that they would want to stay anonymous but i figured that they would think it really unlikely that anyone who found the book would be able to track them down and i had to find quite ingenious ways of making sure they did meet each other um so so i think they there, there was a, a level of I think they imagined a level of anonymity that ended up not existing. So, mm. um, uh, yeah, because if you if you found a notebook and wrote something in it and just left it somewhere random, you know, in a wine bar, in a in a park, uh, you know, wherever, and you don't use your surname, I think you'd imagine that there's no way anyone would find you. So. So I, I, I think they, they felt more secure than perhaps they should have done, given how I made the story work out. Um, right. In terms of, of you know, if, if I found a notebook with, I mean, I would definitely read what was in it. I mean, I love, I'm fascinated by handwriting because we so rarely use handwriting anymore. And, and I figured that if you found a notebook in a cafe or a, on a park bench or whatever, and it had handwriting in it, it would be very hard not to read what was written inside, particularly if the front cover had the authenticity project written on it. And you think, oh, what's that all about? So I think you definitely pick it up. Would you write in it? 
I don't know. I don't know. I'd like to think that people would. I'd like to think that I would. But uh, I don't know. Would you? I would totally read everybody else's because I'm nosy. And then I would totally write something about myself and it would be completely made up. And it would be under a different name. I might use Claire Pooley. Who knows? <laughs> um, I my story would not have worked if everyone had made something up. That's true. It's true. But, um, but not all of us are dishonest in that way. Or I, I think it's more imagination. I don't think of it as dishonesty. Like, does it hurt? Also, I would make myself, I would describe myself as tall and willowy and you know, way younger than I am. So no one would ever find me. Um, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that the Authenticity Project will make an adorable movie. And I'm wondering if you would venture a wish or two about who you'd like to see play the leads, even though I understand you have no choice in the matter. But still, it's fun. <laughs> well, I have sold the film and TV rights, and I'm very much hoping, although these things, as you know, are always such a long shot, but, um, you know, there there were sort of plans and talks about Netflix dramas and blah, 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 so I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Um, the character I would love to play, Julian, and I didn't realise this until I finished writing, and suddenly... I think I saw him on in a film or on TV and it, it became so obvious to me that this was Julian and it's Bill Nighy. I don't know if you're familiar with Bill Nighy, but he was in Love Actually, for instance, and he is a very classic English comedy actor. Uh, he's absolutely brilliant. And uh, he would be my, my Julian. And... Then I went to see A Star is Born with Bradley Cooper and mm. Lady Gaga. And Bradley uh -huh. Cooper plays an addict brilliantly. And I realized that he's my hazard, although he'd need an English accent, which I'm sure right. he could manage. Okay. <laughs> and, and that's as far as I've got, really. Nobody so, for Monica. Nobody for no, Monica. I, I'm, uh, I think maybe Claire Foy, who's in uh, in yes, The Crown, yes. if you've seen The Crown. Absolutely. I love her. Yeah, okay. I, I, thought, I, I think maybe maybe Claire Foy. Um, okay, but, glad we uh, got that sure. figured out. Good. <laughs> okay. I feel like we solved big issue. Um, so, Claire, what are you working on next? Ah, well, I'm actually in the final stages, the copy edit stage of the next novel, which comes out in the US in June uh, next year, so June 2022. Um, and uh, we had huge debates about the title, actually, and we've ended up with two titles. So there's one title in the UK and one in the US, but I think that in the US it's going to be called Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting. And... Uh, the reason for that is, um, I don't know, have you ever done a regular commute, you know, where you take the same train or the same bus every day, day in, day out? Yes, it's so lovely. <laughs> well, I, I did that for years. So, so for years, I took trains, buses, underground trains, and you see the same people over and over again. And, and you start be, being British, and I don't know if it's the same in the US, but in being, you know, in London, commuters do not talk to each other. It's like an unwritten rule. So you might see people over and over again. You might smile at them. You might, you know, might make all sorts of assumptions about them and even give them little nicknames and things, but you don't talk to them. And, 
And I, I used to be quite fascinated by the people I saw on my commute and I'd make up stories about them and who they were. And, um, but I never spoke to them. And during the pandemic, I really missed those crowded, smelly trains and buses and things. And I miss being with crowds of people and I miss seeing strangers in, you know, that, that, I, that started to feel familiar. And so that's really why I wrote this story, which is about a group of people who meet each other on a train and they start talking when one of them nearly dies he inhales a grape by mistake and starts choking and and somebody gives him the heimlich maneuver and that starts things happening um so so yeah so that's that's uh, that's the next book it sounds wonderful thank you so much for joining me today it's been a pleasure Oh, it's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you. It's so, so lovely to be chatting all the way over the Atlantic. <laughs> and thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with British author Claire Pooley about her charming novel, The Authenticity Project. Hope you'll all lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow too. Happy reading.